Coming up on Money Beat, the stock jockeys thought they smelled something on election night, started buying aggressively. Six months later, has that bet come to fruition? Where do things stand now? Where might they be going? We're going to take a look from the bond side of things. Scott Kimball is a bond fund manager over at BMO, and he joins us next. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Money Beat. Paul Vigna here in the studio without my co-host, Stephen Grosser, who is currently somewhere on a subway train underneath New York City because there are some massive subway outages today. Uh, so that that's kind of... It's not just him, though. There's several thousands of other New well, Yorkers. Yeah, well, there. yeah, he's not on a train alone. He is. <laughs> he doesn't have a personal train that takes him to the office. It's not his Eric fault, Holmes. is what I'm saying. Right, right. Uh, anyhow, Grocer is stuck on a subway car underneath the city. We don't know where he is. So I, I grabbed our good friend Eric Holm to come in and, and co-host with me today. Eric, how are you doing? Good, thank you. And what we're going to talk about today, folks, is one of the things you expected in 2017. You expected the handoff. This is what people were talking about. You expected that down in Washington, D.C., there was going to be a grand handoff from the Federal Reserve, which has been running its monetary policy for several years, now trying to prop up the economy, handing off the reins, if you want to put it that way, to the government, to fiscal policy. We're expecting a lot of stimulus to come out of D.C. The Republicans had taken both houses of Congress. Donald Trump had taken the White House. There was a lot of pro-growth talk going on. There was an agenda. You were going to get tax reform. You were going to get health care reform. You were going to get stimulus spending. You were going to get regulatory reform. Hasn't quite happened quite as fast as anybody thought. Uh, To talk about that, we are joined today in the studio by Scott Kimball, who is Portfolio Manager of BMO's TCH Core Bond, Core Plus Bond Fund. You're a bond guy. Scott, how are you doing? Doing well. How are you? Uh, Doing all right. So you're up from Miami, huh? Yes, sir. What brings you to the city today? To visit with you guys. Oh, really? Is that it? Talk some flattered. Bond. I knew, yeah, you know, I knew we'd become a huge destination. You know, this is a kind of a thing, right, for people. But I didn't realize that it would have gotten all the way down to Miami. Yeah, next time you have to come down and visit us, and we'll talk We'll talk bonds in the sunshine. Oh, my God. I can't wait. Grocer's going to pay for that, too. He's going to love it. <laughs> um, so let's talk about let's talk about this, because this was expected in 2017, right? You were going to have this sort of big grand handoff. The Fed was going to ease back. They're going to be able to raise rates and kind of, you know, normalize what everyone calls it, normalize their balance sheet, get things back to to where they used to be without hurting the economy because of this handoff. How do you see that evolving? Well, I think uh, to begin with, on on the handoff between monetary and fiscal policy, there's a few things that have sort of developed in, in a very interesting way. One is that, you know, the Fed themselves has been screaming for fiscal policy help for about right. three years. And then all of a sudden, an election happens and it appears as though they're about to get it. And Chairperson Yellen steps forward and says, well, you know, it may not be as needed now as in the past and things in the labor market look better. So that was a little bit un- – that was one thing the market had to absorb is that, well, you've been asking so much for fiscal policy help and now it's here and now you're saying you may not need it. So that's been something that, you know, we think, you know, there's some Fed speak involved there. There might be, uh, you know, some other backdrop to it that, you know, we're not necessarily focused on. What we're thinking about is – we're assuming the Fed still wants fiscal policy help. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen, and I like, I like the description of the handoff, it, it's very much like you know, the quarterback being the Fed handing the ball to the running back, and they're, now they're reading their blocks and not really running through the hole, very Le'Veon Bell, if you will, uh, and sort of take <laughs> – Wow, nice, nice dig. Taking, nice t- burn. Taking, taking a step back and sort of waiting for things to develop and having exactly 
blown through the the hole just yet. Yeah. And you know, we think the bond market in particular is looking at this saying, well, we we still think we need fiscal policy help. We're not quite sure what the Fed was talking about and saying it may not be as needed because if you look at the labor market statistics, you know, wage growth is still not really uh, inspiring for most Americans. Right. right. Um, despite the fact that you know the the overall unemployment rate is down participation is still not nearly as high as we would expect at this mm-hmm. late in the recovery. So we're assuming fiscal policy is still on the table and the bond market is still on the interest rate front telling people we need it because if you go to that you know uh, mid-March, you know, beware of the Ides of March, literally on March 15th, yes. we saw that the dollar weakened, we saw high yield uh, corporate bond spreads widened, and the Treasury itself declined in yields and still has been declining. And that is signaling that slow up on the fiscal policy side whereby you know, healthcare uh, hit uh, a snag and didn't get through as quickly as possible. That's one so, way of describing it. So people are uh, we're extrapolating out what does that mean for really the big issues for rates are tax reform and infrastructure spending. Mm-hmm. Those are very inflationary type things, and we haven't seen those uh, those come to fruition just yet. So the bonds are, bond market right now is taking a step back and saying if we're not going to get fiscal policy help and geopolitical risk is on the rise, then we're going to likely keep our growth expectations for the U.S. somewhat anchored. And that's what the bond market is, is telling us. So the question now is, where do we go from there? Right. Um, our perspective so, on that. So when you when you look at that ten year yield mm-hmm. on the, the Treasury note, and you see it going from, like you said, right in the middle of March, it hit. I think it was two six two. It got as high mm-hmm. as, and people were saying this is it. The bonds are going to three, and every, and that now it's all back down. What we see reflected in the bond yield is everything you were just saying. That that's what that bond yield is telling us. Right. So the bond market, you know thinks in this forward-thinking fashion about more about expectations than about current uh, current state of the world. So a good example is to really rewind the clock to last July and look at Brexit. Mm-hmm. We saw the 10-year Treasury um, plummeted to 1.3-something percent. That reflected a state of the world where not only was Europe in trouble, which we knew, but likely growth in the U.S. was going to be largely affected. And then as we came through that, we saw that some of that, some of that uh, kind of fell by the wayside, and the market realized, okay, the U.S. might be a little more insulated than this. The numbers out of the U.K. are starting to look better. And then the election in the U.S. happens, and expectations for inflation kind of shoot up higher. And at that point, the market is saying at the 262 level, that's a combination of Brexit not bringing the U.S. to a screeching halt, and furthermore, the U.S. sort of breaking from the world and entering a period of uh, very positive growth-stimulated uh, fiscal policy. I mean, what, what's the bond market saying, though, about the expectation for rate increases going forward here? Do, do, do people believe Janet Yellen and, and the Fed, um, members of the Fed committees, when they say that they're going to keep hiking this year? So the bond market has found that in the past few years, the Fed has overestimated their prognostications for interest rates. Right. Mm-hmm. Over and over and over again. Particularly uh, last year where they were forecasting as many as four hikes and you got one, effectively. right. right. This year, though, the Fed seems to mean much more business. Uh, you had some Fed governors say that March was on the table and you got a hike in March. Furthermore, they also introduced the one thing that the, the elephant in the room nobody was acknowledging, which is the $4 trillion plus balance sheet. Right. So what that tells us, what the markets are really thinking about the Fed is, all right, the Fed has told us that the new Fed funds rate, the neutral Fed funds rate, the one that keeps everything just steady state is fallen. We all agree with that. GDP is at 2 2.5%. So the federal funds rate at neutral is probably somewhere about 1, 1.5. Mm-hmm. But what about the balance sheet? How does that factor into neutrality? That's what I think the bond markets are really wrangling with now, which is that I think they've embraced the fact that the Fed is likely to raise rates one or two more times on the balance of this year. And now is a question about the balance sheet. 
are they going to just taper purchases? Are they going to stop reinvesting the cash flows from the balance sheet? Because the implication of neutral has only been thought of in the realm of the federal funds rate. Now we have to decide what happens to the balance sheet. How does the balance sheet play into neutrality? And that's the very uh, careful tightrope the Fed's going to have to walk on the second part of the year for market expectations is what do they forecast for the balance sheet? Because the market right now at a, at a below a 230 yield is telling them walk very carefully. You know, let's. I want to talk about this a, a lot. I think it's a, it's a really important issue, but uh, I think now is probably a perfect time to take a break. So let's just take a quick one. We will come back after this message. More with Scott Kimball from BMO. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. For more insights, enable the Wall Street Journal skill on any device with Amazon Alexa. Get all of our podcasts, as well as the latest news and market updates. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Money Beat. Paul here with Eric Holm and Scott Kimball, who is portfolio manager of BMO's TCH Core Plus Bond Fund. He's a bond guy. Uh, we're talking about Fed policy, talking about the handoff. And what we're just talking about, which I think is interesting, Scott, is this whole issue of the Fed's balance sheet. And for, for people who are, who are at home who may not have been following this, before the financial crisis, the Fed's balance sheet, in, in, order, in other words, their, their holdings of securities, mainly bonds, was somewhere around, I think, $800 billion. Crisis hits. They drop rates. They start buying bonds. What they're basically doing is trying to get liquidity into the markets to stimulate the economy. Over the course of the next however many years it was, five or six years, whatever, the, the, the QE3, the, the big bond buying programs, they bought almost $4 trillion worth of bonds. What they did was their balance sheet went from about $800 billion, $800 billion to about $4.5 trillion. This is a massive, massive amount of, of, of debt hanging on the Fed's balance sheet. The question becomes, before they're using it to stimulate the economy, the question becomes, what do they do with it? Do they, do they let it just mature? Do they let all these different bonds that they have just mature? Do they sell them? Do they do they reinvest? Because whatever they do with that that balance sheet is going to have an effect on the economy. I mean, this becomes they can use this basically to, to tighten or loosen. You know, this gives them a lot of leverage to affect the economy. It is not a very simple question, though, Scott. As I'm sure you. So can let's make Scott you. answer it, right? So <laughs> let's make Scott answer it, right? Scott, uh, let's say you are Fed chair and you are sitting on this huge balance sheet, and you have to use the. You, it, it has to go somewhere. It can't sit there forever, right? What do you do with it? Well, how tricky is this question for the Fed? Well, we would tell you, you know, looking at just the way we position the core plus bond fund, we still own some mortgage-backed securities. We do think that the Fed is unlikely to just release securities to the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And just to, on background, uh, for the listeners, when the Fed buys mortgage-backed securities, the supply available for you, me, anyone else to buy is reduced. Right. That, that was the whole point, right? The just take point. these off the market and push people into, um, honestly, just riskier assets, right? It says, they're saying, here's you give me the mortgage, I'll give you the cash. 
Go spend it on something that right. is going to be growth, grow, a growth-producing asset, whether it's real estate, high-yield bonds, corporate bonds, investment-grade stocks, whatever, anything but this, please. <laughs> and what ends up happening is liquidity in the marketplace, if they were to start selling bonds and taking in cash, they're going to reduce liquidity. Right. And given that you know they're, the, the bond market today is owned very widely by not just institutions but retail investors, we think they're going to approach it with a good amount of caution because that broad ownership across – the, the you know the the micro balance sheet at the household level and four hundred one ks and retirement mm-hmm. plans and at the the big balance sheet level on the corporate side you know pensions and endowments we're all really relying on them to continue to do things in an orderly fashion and if you start releasing a large amount of securities right. at once we'll see rates go higher that can be very restrictive to the economy it can strengthen the dollar uh, very aggressively uh, it could also put pressure on corporate bond spreads that extra yield you get for owning a corporate bond versus a treasury or a mortgage. You could see pressure on that as mortgage rates were to rise, home values can stable can become stable or decline. That's a very large asset for the micro balance sheet. So as you know, as Fed chair for the day, it's very easy to do that as the armchair Fed chair in your studio. Yeah. I think that stopping the reinvestment at a measured pace, meaning if you're if you're in, if you're reinvesting, you know, 100 percent, one dollar for uh, for every amount of principal you get off your investment, maybe you only put 90 cents back into the market, and you'd use this as a very long soft landing. Because what's important is every time that the Fed, we, and the fancy bond market term for this, they call it the reaction function, which is whenever the Fed sees something, how do they react? Mm-hmm. We would expect them to react very slowly. So let's say growth goes from 2 to 2.5% to a range of 25 to 2 and 3 quarters. You're talking about GDP growth. GDP growth yeah. for the U.S. We think the Fed would likely be on the cautious side and say, we'd rather see risk this going to 3 and be a little behind on growth mm-hmm. than take too much of the sugar out of the punch bowl and have everybody run away. So our, our view is that you want to be very cautious if you're the Fed. Uh, you want to slow your reinvestment and allow the maturities maybe to run off, but not in aggregate go to the market and say, here, take all these securities back, give me your cash, and, and be on your way. Right. Which I think is interesting. I mean, you talk about the punch bowl, too. I mean, this is not a a normal situation for the Federal Reserve to be in. I mean, historically... Yes, they're responsible for interest rates, and they have the dual mandate of of stable prices and employment. But in general, you know, they're not sitting there trying to figure out how do we get four trillion dollars worth of liquidity off our balance sheet back into the market without tanking the economy because they could. They're not going to. I mean, but if the Fed actually decided we want to tank this economy, all they have to do is aggressively unload that balance sheet, and you would see a global panic. They're not going to do that. I'm just trying to stress how much, how big this is and how much power they have. You know, the issue of the, the punch bowl, their traditional role, I mean, this is McChesney Martin, right? He said it in, in 1955, the famous punch bowl speech to a bunch of New York bankers who were basically asking the Fed to do more. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, that's not our role. Our role is not to do more. Your role is to do more. Your role is to go out there and, and spend and invest and get the economy going. Our role is to make sure that you're responsible. Our role is to take away the punch bowl when the party gets going. And that was the famous metaphor. Now you're in a a really very different situation for the Fed. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. And to to stick with the the punch bowl analogy, you know, uh, the the Fed basically has added sugar and spiked it along the way uh, by this quantitative easing program. But and the one thing that we, you know, we talk to our constituents that are invested in, in, in the Core Plus Fund or any of our other uh, corporate strategies, we always say that you, not only is the, the Fed is on the side of economic growth. They want healthy, sustainable economic growth. 
So to your point, they're not going to to take the punch bowl away and risk growth. Right. They're, if anything, the Fed is going to want uh, maybe to have growth stay within uh, a corridor that doesn't cause inflation to run away. They don't want too much money. But that hasn't happened as yet. Mm-hmm. You know, We're just starting to see inflation get near 2%. And that's on the overall aggregate level. If we start looking at wage growth, which is what we think is really important, if you look at the amount of earnings people are getting in parts of, uh, parts of the country, they're still below inflation. As long as the Fed, and you can see there's a great quote from Janet Yellen back in 1997, where she says part of the job of central policy can be to let the wheel, use inflation to grease the wheels of the labor market. And they may be willing to let inflation run a little higher in major metropolitan areas, but they need the rest of America to fill in and see growth accelerate there, uh, accelerate there as well. And when you see the wage growth start getting consistent with their mandated inflation around 2%, that's when they may start taking things like the balance sheet a little more aggressively. But if you look at the data, we're still a good clip away from that. You guys should go – if it weren't 11 a.m., you guys should go out for a beer after this because Paul's favorite thing to do is harp <laughs> on about wage growth. Um, 11 a.m. is beer time, isn't it? I'm sorry. <laughs> no. No, Paul, it's not. <laughs> As someone who has to edit your copy, please do not drink beer now. Um, yeah. No, I – what is what is your outlook for, for inflation for the, for the coming um, – uh, actually, the better question, what was your outlook for inflation on election night or the day after the election? <laughs> So our, our and how has that changed? Certainly, our, our so the way we position we we position our, our 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 bond funds and the way we manage money is we think about a twelve to twenty four month time horizon. So when we see an event that comes up like you know an election, what does that change for us on the inflationary front? Our view is that the really the quick reaction for inflation expectations to soar uh, on on election night was probably a little overdone. Um, I mean, if you think about the grand the grand scheme of inflation it's really a function of more than just you know ideas or policy ideas you things like leverage come into play uh, and also the pace at which you know infrastructure spending and tax plans are implemented so our view is that we may have we have a, a pretty different a pretty radical change in expectations from the market but that was also implying an acceleration in policy implementation so our view on inflation was that the fed's target of 2% it may have moved a little higher on some reflationary expectations from policy, mm-hmm. but not so much to get into a two and a half or three percent runaway inflation. We still have a long. If you start building infrastructure today, you start doing public and private partnerships, raising tax incentives, closing loopholes. These are all you know have a long lag time to them. It would be you know two or three years before you see the inflation data really pick up from that type of fiscal stimulus. I. I- you, what you say makes sense, and I, 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 everyone that we talk to always says that the market overreacted right after election day. So, uh, someone has to be on the other side of the trade. Someone has to have been overreacting. So, who was it? If everyone realized it was an overreaction, I don't. I just don't know what was driving the market then. You know, it's a similar phenomenon to what we saw, and I know this upsets the equity guys when the bond guys chime in. <laughs> but if you saw the stock market right around what was it, ten thirty? On yeah. election night, I was here. Almost it was crazy. Almost down a, a thousand points, and right. you woke up the next morning and you're up. What was it, four or five hundred? Or never dime. went to sleep, by the way. Right, <laughs> if just, you were me. It just did a just did it just did a V-shaped complete Boom. recovery. Yeah. Um, we think that the reality but, is, but, and that started the moment Donald Trump said the word infrastructure. By the way, interesting. Yeah, it, I, I was I saw it live, and so it fits with what you're saying. So go ahead. So the. You know, there's there's a big there's a propensity in the market today to blame things on the machines, right. uh, and we do we do think that when you see that type of volatility in a financial market, be it equities, it unlike it, it's very unlikely that it would stay contained there, and it probably flipped over to uh, the interest rate side. Maybe some markets overseas thought 
we don't know what this means, sell treasuries, sovereign wealth funds. Yeah. Um, that's not unusual whenever you see – I mean, you see it sometimes with just a, a 30-year treasury bond auction. This was a 30-year treasury bond auction times 100. Um, but as the data started to come out and the U.S. markets uh, awoke the next morning and started absorbing um, some of what these policy implementations were, it shouldn't really have changed that much. So we think U.S. institutional money looked at it and said, well – there's not really that this changed an instantaneous change here. There still is. Uh, this still has to be implemented, and we're still a good ways away from that. And the fundamental U.S. story didn't change over a uh, course of one night, regardless of how many people were surprised by the outcome of an election. Sure, but the it, stocks went words, up and yields. In other words, he's blaming the stock jockeys. <laughs> All right. The bond guy is blaming blaming the stock guys. Right. When in doubt, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. We blame them too. I mean, you know, we're journalists. Yeah, you know, like no, but I, I mean, I. I what you're saying, I, I basically agree with. I mean, the stock market, you could see it. And look, the stock market, they love to think that they're the smartest guys on the planet and they see things that are going to come down, you know, six, 12 months down the pike. They see it now. So they're buying now so they can make all the money off it. And, and that's what they did. They thought they saw what was going to happen. They tried to anticipate it and they bought. Boom. And they, they saw an opportunity and they all jumped on it. I guess my question was more to the idea that uh, across several asset classes for a month or two, um, there was a pretty strong reaction to, to a pretty um, – uh, there was a consensus narrative. And it, 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 did, it did play out in 24 hours, but it also continued to play out for a couple of weeks. Well, right. and, and it's kind of what you're saying. Like you said, you said it's not – you said we, we knew this was not going to be contained to just the equity market. Like you were going to see this – bleed out into other because for better or for worse the equity market is big and it matters and if people are buying in the stock market you know it, it's uh actually while well, we have to talk to us a little bit about this about what how, how do assets correlate how do assets you know how does how does a move in one asset jump to another one sure well the typical correlations that we see are stocks versus bonds have a negative correlation in that when stocks are declining, bonds tend to rally and vice versa. Right. In general. In general. Yeah. What's happened now after, you know, the it's not just the Fed. If you think about all central banks, um, 13 or $14 trillion mm-hmm. of uh, quantitative easing-like programs between the ECB, the Bank of Japan, and the Fed alone have been put in place over the last decade. Right. And that has caused, you know, the fancy term people use is autocorrelation. What that really means is just a fancy way of saying everything starts behaving in some sort of a way that it just goes together. They just decide that, you know what, this historically has been something that was an opposite effect, and now we're all going to behave the same. So if you think about those balance sheets and what the implications are, what that means for bonds and what it means for stocks, effectively, they both interpret a reduction in the balance sheet as meaning the same thing. An increase in the supply of securities will push yields higher. That'll be a negative for bond prices, positive for yields. But likewise, it could be that it would slow growth and make money less uh, available for corporations and equity markets as well. So we see equity markets decline as well. Mm -hmm. So we've seen that in instances where it's specific to the balance sheet, the Fed, the global policies, things like like, uh, the ECB and the BOJ as well, I'll keep in the mix, that those specific triggers or factors have caused – that autocorrelation where asset classes behave in a similar fashion when typically they would be on opposing ends of the spectrum. Hmm. All right. Uh, we have been speaking with Scott Kimball, who is portfolio manager of BMO's TCH Core Plus Bond Fund. Scott, thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Really good stuff. Uh, thanks for, you know, hopefully you had other stuff to do in New York besides just visiting us because there's no way that you could justify this trip to your bosses. Just stay off the just subway. Just to come to, yeah. Stay off the stay subway. Stay off the subway. Take a cab.
Uh, uh, appreciate the pre- appreciate the tip. I'll be in an Uber. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Oh yeah, Uber. I'm a little too old school. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. We'll catch up with you soon. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously.